A little picture might pop up, I hope, um, if uh, we can put the first one up. Uh, what do you see? What do you see? I guess you might see at that point a kind of city worker in London, no one particular there. But what do you see? You kind of see content, I guess, in, in many ways, financially stable, I guess fairly confident, and you know, secure. Again, what do you see on the next one? Uh, young mum, I kind of do the typical things around here, you know, very secure, confident, probably got the pushchair that outdoes the other pushchair of the other mums around the area. Everyone gets pushchair envy. And there we go. What do you see on the next one, apart from the hair transplant? Um, what do you see? I guess you see huge wealth, don't you? Um, you see talent on the football pitch. Questionable, but okay. Um, you, you'll see uh, probably a very nice car, if you're like me. Again, the next one. What do you see here? I, you know, the beauty, the success, the wealth, the talent-ish. You know, it's all kind of there, isn't it? The question is, what does Jesus see? What does Jesus see? And Jesus sees sheep without a shepherd. That's what we saw last week, wasn't it? When Jesus looked out of the crowds in chapter 9, verse 36, uh, he looked if you like, beyond the material veneer of the wealth and the beauty of the crowds. And he looked into people's hearts. He said, didn't he, of them, he described the, the crowd that surrounded them, they were harassed and helpless. I guess they weren't running around looking physically or emotionally harassed, you know, oh, you know terrible, or, or helpless in, in, in any way. There may be some like that, but I guess many of them weren't. I'm sure many would have been secure financially, like we've seen you know, up on here on the screen, with families to support them. So how were they harassed and helpless? What does Jesus see? Well, he looks out at the crowd, and I guess he looks around the streets of which we live, and Jesus sees people who are spiritually harassed and helpless. They have eternal needs. And to use that language that is both in our passage now, but what we heard in Ezekiel 34, they, they have a need for an eternal shepherd to love them and protect them and their hearts spiritually. Jesus sees a need in humanity for a saviour, a king, to save and to guide in this life, but on to the next too. But it's very hard, isn't it, to see people like that when you're working with them at the schools or the, the offices, wherever you are. Because people look so able, don't they? So in control, so secure, so confident. But eternally, before a perfect and righteous, just judge and sovereign God... They, like all of us, have been at some point in our lives, the people out there that we know and love are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And that is why Jesus, as we see on our outline there, has compassion. He has compassion. And that word actually comes from entrails, actually. So it's, a, it's kind of a compassion right from inside himself. A gut-wrenching compassion, I said last week. But that compassion is not passive. It brings about response in the person. If you have compassion on someone, they respond. And that you respond. And that, we see that last week. We saw 
that, that Jesus was compassionate upon the people, but that response was in prayer. He encouraged the people to pray. Verse 38 says, we must ask or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus states there's a problem about this, isn't there? The harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people out there. Oh, I just picked four there. But you know, there are plenty of people out there that you know and love and work with. The harvest field is full. But the workers are few. Why is that? Well, as I mentioned, probably because we struggle to see people as Jesus sees them. They just look too successful, too secure, too in control, too nice, maybe just too British. It's hard to see those around us as harassed and helpless, isn't it? As sheep without a shepherd. And you'll say things like this, I've said it in my heart and mind. Sometimes, yeah, surely me, I'm not the worker surely that's someone else's role they're gifted in that you say that to yourself all the time I, sometimes we do don't we and we'll say things like this oh, you know i'm happy to support others i've got i've got finance i'll, I'll give and, and then others can do that work they can go into the harvest fields or even pray and be committed to pray for those people now imagine i just want you to can to change the pictures just if you can. Now imagine I put on your screen your neighbour. Go on. Keep going. Keep going. Look on there. There we go. Imagine I put on there your neighbour. Now I haven't got pictures of all your neighbours, but if I did. Now imagine I put on, on the person that you, you're always at the gym with. Now imagine if I just put your colleague, you know, the one who sat just across from you. Imagine now I put the picture of the person you, you know, quite regularly have a coffee with, after the school run, or whatever it may be, or after work. The question is, I guess, can I go out into your field? The harvest is ready, the workers are few, but can I, I can't, I don't know them. And you do. See, when we ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, we're, we're asking God to send us, each of us, to these people that you know. And I hope, as Jesus instructs in our passage last week, that firstly, that you are praying for them, that this gut-wrenching compassion that you have, you begin to see them as Jesus sees them, and it calls you to pray for them urgently. And that you might be sent out into that field that God has placed you. But as we're going to see this week, that compassion that Jesus, in the way that he sees people, at least firstly to prayer, but then secondly, as we're going to see uh, today in chapter 10, it leads to proclamation. It leads to proclamation. The authoritative king of God's kingdom has come in Jesus. That's what the whole of this Matthew's gospel has been leading up to. And so now is the time to, as we've seen prayerfully, but also confidently and now publicly, proclaim that he is the way into that eternal kingdom that he is ushering in. The demons are the ones that picked it up, weren't they, last week, as we saw in chapter 8, verse 27. They knew that in Jesus coming to this earth, he was demonstrating all his authority, but in his kindness, he was showing that humanity had an opportunity to respond to him. To turn to him. To trust 
him. Because the demons knew, and they expressed in that verse, that an appointed time was coming. A time when there was no time left to respond to the authoritative king of God's kingdom. Jesus demonstrated his authority, firstly in words, chapters 5 to 7. Then he demonstrates his authority in chapters 8 and 9 through his miraculous deeds. And now in chapter 10, he's going to pass on that authority to these appointed 12 disciples who will be sent out to become apostles. They were now going to take his authoritative words and deeds to the world. So this good news, this gospel would spread far and wide to many more people. Now before we dive into this passage, I guess one of the things you need to be careful when you get to passages like this is make sure you don't over-apply it, but at the same time you don't want to under-apply it either. And it become utterly useless for us today. Or we, you know... If you have a look at it here and cast your eyes down, perhaps to um, verse 1 to begin with. Ought we to expect to heal every disease as we go out into the harvest fields? So you go to your office tomorrow and someone has a bit of a sore leg. I'll I'll deal with that, thank you. Ought we to expect that? That would be quite amusing, uh, I guess. Uh, The question is, is it possible? Yes, it is. Because in all things, in, in all things, God can be sovereign and overrule in those situations. But it is very, 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 very unlikely. See, but throughout the Bible, these times of miraculous deeds, these supernatural occurrences, they're reserved uniquely for special moments when God is working, intervening into history to make his will and his plans known. To the people. So it is possible that you might be able to do exactly what the, the, the apostles do, but it's very, 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 and I want to love to say that word lots and lots of times, very unlikely indeed. Likewise, I mean, you just cast your eyes down again a little bit further to verse 9, um, 8, 9, 10. Ought we to expect only to wear one coat? Bit a bit of a shame for many of you, I guess. Ought we to write to our mission partners and say, as in verse 9, I'm afraid jewellery's out. Now, I guess every scholar you read I mean, would say that these are unique men with a unique mission in a unique time, given a unique authority, and therefore are given a unique kind of um, role. And how they configured that role was to be so distinct from the people around them and so trusting in the mission and authority that Jesus has sent them in that here they have particular requirements made upon them that are not made elsewhere to those who are sent out. So we need to be careful, don't we, not to over-apply these verses, as you can see from those illustrations. But similarly, we must not under-apply and say this is just for those people in that time. There are many lessons to learn here for us in our harvest fields as workers for the gospel. Because if we follow Christ, we are all disciples, disciples, followers. We're all followers of Christ. And therefore we are sent out by Christ as apostles of Christ, with a small a, not one of the twelve. We're all sent ones, if you like, in that way. Now the twelve are unique, yes, in their time, with their authority, they have the ability to both teach 
and to heal and to perform these wonderful, miraculous deeds. But we have a saving gospel to proclaim like them. And we have as people to proclaim it too. So let's not under-apply this passage. Let's learn from them as we read and humbly submit ourselves to God's word. Why? Well, there are many, many sheep out there, harassed and helpless, in need of knowing the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's get to our first point there. We see that we must not only pray in compassion for those around us, but we also must see we must proclaim. And there's our first point. The 12 were called and given authority to proclaim the gospel. A little bit, a few cursory points about that to begin with. Notice the deliberate 12 of the apostles uh, in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. As God led um, the people in the Old Testament uh, through the 12 tribes, now Jesus gives authority to these 12 men, disciples, later apostles, to lead, to lead God's people. But their leadership is different It is not institutional as it was in the tribes. Rather, it has a set purpose. Many would say it's missional. It has an aim. And that is to proclaim the gospel. The authority they're given is to demonstrate that they have heavenly power, if you like, given by the Lord Jesus Christ to make that gospel known. I guess what they're saying, as the whole of Matthew 5, really through to the end of chapter 10 is saying, he is here. The one you've been waiting for, Jesus the King is here. And this message and these miraculous deeds declare that loud and clear. The 12 we see initially in these first few verses proclaimed through miraculous signs. They're proclaiming the Lord Jesus' authority through that. But it will be later when you see and look at verse 7 if you want, as they begin to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. The two work hand in hand. So the twelve were given this kind of unique authority. Hence in verse 1 they, um, you see they're called disciples. But very quickly by verse 2. Do you see that? Their names are changed. They're now apostles. We see there. That is they've been given authority. They've been sent out. Authorised by the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been given authority by the king of God's kingdom. To proclaim the gospel. To demonstrate its power through these miraculous deeds, driving out evil spirits, healing and so on. And it's a proclamation of power and authority of Jesus, both in word and deed. And the two go hand in hand. The king of God's eternal kingdom, he was here and they were to proclaim it as we are too as well. And this good news is not just for those who are healed. You can imagine it was quite an exciting time, don't you? As these disciples went out, now apostles. It's not just good news for those who are healed. It's good news for us too. Now you may be here and you may have an illness. You may have a sickness which you've been going through for many years. And it feels burdensome. And you may read these verses and think, oh, I'd love to have been there. Can you imagine just getting one of these... Uh, you know, apostles just nipping out. Hey, I'm here. Deal with it. Yeah, great. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I mean, for a short while, as I said last week, it was like heaven was on earth. 
All the consequences of sin, that seen its physical manifestations, was being dealt with, restored and renewed. But all of that work is pointing to a greater need, to a greater work and to a greater miracle. See, to be healed, it would be great news, wouldn't it, if you're, if you're suffering today. But to have your life saved for eternity with God, in glory, enjoying Him forever, well, it's beyond good. It's utterly amazing. I don't know if you, did you see on the news, it was on Friday morning, I think, on, on Breakfast News, there was a boy, an eight-year-old boy, who had... Um, been born and uh, he had about two weeks to live, he was given. He had a rare form of leukaemia. He needed a bone marrow transplant. And, uh, you know, adverts went out for more donors to come in and no match was found in America. And likewise, in the UK, adverts went out and no match was found for this chap who had given his, um, kind of, his, was a donor up in Newcastle. And in the UK, no match was found, but they found this match. I think it was over in Los Angeles of this a few months old boy, and he was saved. And the news was reporting yesterday of the, the coming together of the donor and the recipient child who was saved. It was you know, typically American in the news, you know, oh yeah, lots of hugs and lots of tears, and oh, they were playing ball on the field, and it was great and very exciting. And you can see the parents, they were floods of tears. And yet, what had this man of Newcastle given to this little boy, who was now eight years old and very grateful? What had he given him? He'd given him a chance to go to school. He'd given him a chance to throw a ball around on a field. He'd given him a chance to enjoy his family and his friends. He'd given him, what, yes, 70 years or, or so, depending on how long he lives. The point being, Jesus offers... What? Infinitely more. Infinitely more. You see, when Jesus Christ came to the earth, yes, he spoke with authority. Yes, he did these miraculous deeds of authority. Chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel there. He demonstrated to the world that he was king, had authority over all things, could give anything. But then the extraordinary thing is, is he stretched out his arms on a cross And it seemed like all his authority had gone. Romans made sure he was dead and they buried him. But then, amazingly, we know it's not the end. He rose from the dead and historically verified, no history denies the fact that he managed to walk around and he was seen by hundreds of people. He was risen. He defeated death. His authority wasn't just confined to a few things of 70 years, chucking a ball around and so on. His authority, Jesus' authority, extended to life itself. He not only could give you 70 years, he could give you eternity. It was all under his control. Revelation puts it, he has the keys to death. It's all in his control. So Jesus has the authority to offer life, 70 years of purpose and of joy today on this earth. Maybe less, maybe more. Followed by infinity with him, enjoying him. 
Jesus didn't just come to this earth to see your sore legs, your skin complaints, your emotional struggles and sort those out. Oh yes, he's there. And he's a loving shepherd who longs to come alongside you and help you through those difficulties and trials. And in so doing, use those trials to make you more like him, to trust him more and to ready you for eternity with him. See, the greater miracle is that Jesus now is sending these 12 men out to proclaim that he's got authority over all of this. That he doesn't just give life for a few years here to have a bit of fun on a field and go to school. He gives infinite life, eternal life with him. So as we finish this point, well, look at the people in your field, to use that metaphor. Do you have compassion on them? Do you see them as Jesus sees them? Are you praying for them? And, and it's a, are, you, are you willing to be sent out to them? And like the disciples, apostles, the sent ones here, are you willing to proclaim that greater miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ? The one who can offer eternal life as he stretched out his arms on a cross and defeated death in his resurrection. So firstly, the twelve were called and given authority to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, the twelve are sent to preach the gospel to the lost sheep. The twelve are sent to preach the gospel to the lost sheep. The, the twelve were, the word is to proclaim there, but it's, it's also to, that really means to herald. It is to make known publicly. Now, of course, we, we do that in this new age, of new world of uh, kind of Twitter sure Simon will be like tweeting about that later and uh, you know change your Facebook status or whatever it may be but it doesn't take away from their proclamation was in word from a person to a person uh, you can hand out a flyer but it, it's not really kind of doing what really the proclamation the heralding of words is doing here which are proclaim. The signs and wonders, though, the shepherd and the sheep language, you look down at verse 6, you'll see it there. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. All of this coming together, even the geography of where the disciples are asked to go to proclaim the gospel. Look at that in verse 5. Do not go above the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. All of those things come together, really, and they are stating, if you like, one big fact. The king of God's eternal kingdom, the good shepherd, the son of David in Ezekiel 34 language, he's arrived. You've been waiting for him? He's arrived. You see, that is what Ezekiel 34 um, was saying earlier. I mean, do flick back to it if you can. Can someone just call out the, um, the page number? I'm sorry, I've, I've just lost it. 865. Thank you very much, Linda. That's earned your wages this week. Do go back to that. 865. We'll just spend a moment there if we can. See, it does seem very strange that the, the um, disciples, uh, the apostles there, they're restricted in their mission. As Jesus was primarily in his mission until his resurrection, very much confined to the, the lost sheep of Israel, to, to people in a concentrated area around Galilee. 
You see, it was the people of Israel, the Jews. They were the primary focus, both for the sent disciples, uh, but also for Jesus himself. And that is why Matthew is pointing out this out. He's pointing out the lost sheep, the lost sheep of Israel. We see that because in Ezekiel 34, there are promises um, that a great, a good and great shepherd would arrive for these lost sheep. And you see in verse 11, if you flick down there, it is from God himself. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. This uh, great shepherd will depose the false shepherds, which are kind of rebuked in those early verses, verses 1 to 6. He will be appointed as the true shepherd. And he will reign as the son of David. You'll see later if you read it later. And his true shepherding will begin. And the twelve are sent out to these lost sheep to preach a message. Let's just flick back if we can. I'm sorry we haven't spent much time there, but we need to move on. Flick back again to, to Matthew chapter 10. What is the message they preach? Who they preach to? The lost sheep of Israel. They've been let down by their leaders. What do they preach? The message is short, isn't it? You see it there? The kingdom of God is near. Verse 7. They are announcing that the king was near. Near because he was spatially near. Near in, they just left him. Just been sent out by him. Just a few miles down the road. But he was also near temporally. That is in time. That is the kingdom of which the king was opening up. Ushering in for these lost sheep of Israel. That was very close at hand. He was like, I guess, at this stage, the the blossom of spring ushering in the summer. His kingdom is imminent. A kingdom of which all that sickness, all that suffering, all the evil, all the torment that we see in the world and we experience will be banished, destroyed and judged. This eternal kingdom is near, he is saying. That is what they are proclaiming. Where the dead will be raised to be judged and those of us who turn and trust in this authoritative king will be shepherded by him protected by him loved by him for eternity the twelve are sent to announce with authority that the king has arrived firstly they announce it to those who have been failed by the leaders the shepherds of Israel that is the lost sheep of Galilee here Now, I'm going to move on to our third point here. I'm I'm going to apply that more directly when we get to the end of our third point, okay? But let's move on, if we can, to our third point. The twelve shrewdly seek the worthy who welcome the gospel. We're looking here, really, at verses 11 to 15. I guess, humanly speaking, our ability... I mean, this applies to anything, but here, particularly to the gospel. But our ability to benefit... From the gospel the twelve proclaim. It utterly depends, well, humanly speaking, it depends on our acceptance of their message. The message that you have in your hands. Think about it in the Council of Nicaea, 8365. The only way that any New Testament letter or, or book could be included within the New Testament canon, it had to be apostolic 
sourced, written by an apostle. So, you see, humanly speaking, our, benefit, our, our ability to benefit from the gospel, the twelve proclaim here in a gospel message, depends on our acceptance of their message. They've been given authority by Christ. We now have to accept that message. The original people of God, you see, were defined by the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus has now given authority to these 12 apostles, these foundational figures of his new covenant kingdom. And just as the original membership of God's kingdom depended on your relationship to the 12 tribes and their leaders, so now our membership in God's kingdom that Jesus is ushering in depends on our, either our rejection or our reception of the message of the twelve that you have in your hands. So who responds here in our passage? Have a look, have a look down. Who responds to the message they proclaim? Well, it's really helpful to see there's a word which unfortunately the NIV that we have in front of us doesn't really pick up well enough on. I'll read it out in the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible. It seems to do better here. I'm sorry, I don't normally do this, but I think it, the reason it's picking up the people who receive the gospel that's proclaimed are the worthy. It's mentioned once in the NIV, but let me read it out in the ESV and you'll see the point. It says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So the worthy there. So find out who is worthy in it, the town and village. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, the ESV says, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. That is, it is the worthy who accept and receive this gospel message that the twelve are proclaiming. Now the worthiness is then defined, look at it in verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, see, the worthy welcome and listen. If they don't, shake, off the dust of, shake the dust off your feet and when you leave that home or town. You see, the worthiness here is to receive the gospel message that the apostles are proclaiming. If you receive that gospel message, Jesus is saying, you're in. You're part of this kingdom that I am ushering in through my death and resurrection. And if we reject it, well, the apostles are to shake off the dust. They're to leave. It will leave you. The authoritative message, saving message, will leave you. And verse 15 is haunting, isn't it? As a reminder of the consequences. Even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you do not, as a worthy person, receive this gospel proclaimed. Twelve, bring the message. It is in our hands. And humanly speaking, we can either accept or reject. So what can we learn from these verses? Let's close now with just a few things to take home if we can. Was the message always this restricted? I mean, they just covered a few kind of square miles at this stage was it always that restricted well what about the people in London people we know and love well look down if you can to verse 18 you'll see that it begins to spread out already by then to the Gentiles that is the rest of the world the, the non-Jews so even in the next few verses we see the expanse and the expansiveness of the gospel being proclaimed uh, and then even by th- verse 32 the 12 have been expanded to 
So it's not just the 12 proclaiming. Um, the, the expanse of it where it's going out um, gone out. But also, uh, the, who's proclaiming it is, is getting bigger as well. So you get to verse 32. And whoever acknowledges me before man. The term whoever and anyone comes up again and again and again. From verse 32, 33, 39, 40, 41. You see, it's anyone, any of us, who would proclaim Verse 38, very famously, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. saying, follow me in the proclamation. We're to proclaim it from the rooftops, verse 27. I guess by that, at any chance we get. But who is worthy? Who will welcome this gospel? The king has arrived, that's what we've seen, and we're to be confident because we have this authoritative message of the apostolic historical witness right in front of us in the Bible. But who shall we tell? Who will welcome you and listen to your words? I guess the point is, is the crowds of which you live around and work amongst, you do not know who will welcome and receive this gospel message. The apostolic historical witness. You do not know, do you, who will welcome it and receive it. So who are the worthy? Who will welcome, as you, welcome you as you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ to them? The point is you do not know. But that does not stop you. It did not stop the apostles here. They went out. And they proclaimed, they were sent out and they proclaimed the saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the people they could. So we must go. With that authoritative message of the apostles, it is in our hands. We are privileged, so privileged to have it in our hands, in the Bibles. But we must proclaim it to the lost sheep who we know, who are harassed and helpless. We must have compassion on them, as the Lord Jesus does, because they need the good shepherd, just as we do, to love and to protect us and to guide us today, but eternally too. Let's pray.